You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. You can pick up your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. That's page 249 in the church Bible, which is in the seat in front of you. And if you're visiting and you don't own a Bible, please take that one as our gift to you. It is free. As well, in the bulletins, you'll notice there are fill-in-the-blanks with all the main points. We encourage you to take notes um, and write this stuff down so that you're more likely to retain it. As well, if you uh, like to follow the Bible on your phone, turn on your phones and uh, click in. Uh, I like paper, but some of you young people like phones. I remember when I was speaking to a bunch of youth once, I was watching uh, um, this one guy and he had his, his fingers are clicking away, uh, click, 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 uh, and so I knew he wasn't reading his Bible, uh, but then after he said, oh, excellent sermon, uh, uh, pas- a sermon pastor, uh, this is just such a great job, uh, and then I saw his phone and it had a video game uh, <laughs> on the screen still, so, <laughs> but none of you would do that course. Let's take a minute and pray. God, thank you for a great day. This can be a great day because we have hope in you. Lord, thank you that we all woke up, that we all walked in here on our own Uh, power, Lord. You've given us air in our lungs to breathe. You've given us the day to live. And Lord, who knows what the day is going to bring. But with you, there is great hope and great joy that we can we can find. And so just uh, help us to open our hearts uh, to what we're going to learn from David's life and uh, how it is he was able to, uh, to have hope in amongst the suffering that he would go through, Lord, and, and give us hope in you. And Lord, help me, a simple man, to uh, proclaim your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1809, uh, in a little town in Kentucky, a young baby named Abraham Lincoln was born. Uh, His mother died when he was very young. His father didn't have much uh, to do with him and not much interest in him and left him actually for a few months to go off to the city to look for a new uh, wife. And so uh, young Abraham, from a young age, uh, decided that he was going to be a guy who helped people and he devoted his life to serving others. He was a follower of Jesus Christ, and someday I look forward to meeting him in heaven. And then in 1861, um, in what was one of the greatest presidential uh, upsets up until that point, uh, he became uh, president of the United States at age 51. He was uh, campaigning on the promise of equality for all races uh, with his intent to someday end slavery. And of course, that sparked Uh, what would become the worst war in U.S. history, the Civil War. And Lincoln would lead the people through the hardest couple of years of their life and hold the nation together. God would, through him, hold them together. Uh, He was devoted to truth and forgiveness. So much so that, did you know that uh, about 80%, above 80% of uh, countries that go into Civil War, they split um, and, and they often, upwards of, 80% never become a whole nation again. They're given to internal fighting and conflict for uh, 
the rest of their existence, or they just become two nations. But because of Lincoln's forgiveness for those who had fought against uh, the Union, they were able to heal. Until April 14th, 1865, a young, uh, disgruntled, bitter, failed actor, John Booth, shot Lincoln in the back of the head while he was watching the theater. And he died at 55 years old, just after the war had ended. And you know, if I was to ask Lincoln a question, it might be, uh, Mr. President, uh, if you could have seen, if God was to show you uh, before you became president, uh, what a life of service and a life of dedication and all the suffering that you would go through over that four-year period. If you look at pictures of Lincoln when he became president, uh, four years later when he died, he looked like he'd aged 20 years. If you knew the stress and the suffering that you would go through in order to do good, would you still do it? If you knew you would die for it, would you still go forward in that suffering? That's a question that I might ask him someday. And isn't God good that he doesn't show us our futures? He doesn't show us what's going to happen. Imagine if God was to show you and he said, I'm going to show you your future and you've got two options. Uh, You can uh, do wrong and and do what's good for you and do what's convenient uh, and and you'll have success and you'll have pleasure uh, for a short time. Or you can do what's right and you can do what's good and you're going to suffer for a short time. What would you choose? If he could show you the outcome of your future children before you had them and, and, and you would see that even though you devote yourself to loving them and raising them up in the way of the Lord, some of them are going to turn away and maybe give their lives to evil. Would you still have those kids? If he could uh, show you that you're going to invest your time into some people in, in the church and, and instead of uh, hearing what you uh, say and, 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 and changing their lives, they're going to turn around and, and, and do harm to you and, and not uh, use your time wisely, would you still serve those people? If he could show you that uh, by serving in this job you're serving in uh, with honesty and integrity, you're going to be overlooked and you're not going to get promoted, would you still act in that way? If he could show you that by serving God with all your heart, you might actually give yourself, you might actually have to die for your faith, would you still go forward? Those are questions that maybe we would ask ourselves. Would you still do right if you knew you were going to suffer for doing right? That's a hard question to wrestle with, and by God's grace, he doesn't show us the future. But still, David is going to suffer And still we will suffer for doing what is right. That's a reality of life. David is coming off one of the greatest victories, the greatest victory of his life. And he is about to go through the longest and one of the hardest periods of his life. He has defeated the giant. He has uh, overcome that giant that was enslaving Israel. And David quickly gains four things through this. Four quick things in this year that goes on after this great victory. The first thing is he gains a best friend. He gains a best friend with the prince. Look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 18. When David finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan was bound to David in close friendship, and he loved him as much as he loved himself. Skip to verse 3. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him so much as himself. Then Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. David gains a friend 
the prince as a friend. And he's not just an acquaintance that you chat about with uh, sports and how the Leafs are doing. He's not just a friend you go and do fun things with and then, uh, well, your kids to play together and you grill on Fridays. He's not just a, a friend that you do casual life with. No, no, he's a true friend. He gains a true friend, a real friend, somebody that he can be real with and somebody that's real with him. Somebody who doesn't have to pretend around, somebody that can call him on his stuff, somebody that cares about him more than, the scripture says, more than he cared about himself or as much as he cared about himself. That's a real friend. That's a true friend. And men, and uh, next Monday, we're going to be at Ready Men talking about this relationship between David and Jonathan with more detail and how we can become that kind of a friend to other men and how we should be looking for that kind of friendship, not the superficial, dysfunctional relationships that so many be- men build nowadays. Second thing David gains is a high position. Look at verse 5. David marched out with the enemy and was successful in everything Saul sent him to do. Saul put him in command of the fighting men, which pleased all the people and Saul's servants as well. So for 20 years of David's life, he's had no power, not even enough power uh, to run his own life. Uh, The only power he has is over the sheep. He wasn't uh, even allowed to determine where he would go. His father would send him, and he'd do what his father says, and then Saul would send him. And now he has power, quick gain power. He goes from not even a man in the army to being in charge of the fighting men, the elite force. Now he's in charge of hundreds and soon thousands. He would be the equivalent of a modern-day colonel, so he goes from nothing to a full-bird colonel. Number three, third thing he gets is famous reputation. Almost instantly has a famous reputation. Verse 6, as the troops were coming back, when David was returning from killing the Philistines, the women, women came out of the cities of all of Israel to meet King Saul, singing and dancing with tambourines. They shouted for joy with three-stringed instruments, and they danced. The women sang, Saul has killed his thousands, and David has killed his tens of thousands. He is what we would call an overnight sensation. Do you know that that's what we, a lot of young people want to be, is an overnight sensation? When I grew up, uh, people wanted to be a WWF, well, the boys did, a WWF wrestling star uh, or a Toronto Blue Jay. Now, you know what the number one thing that kids between 8 and 12 want to be on a large survey that was done uh, in the U.S. and U.K.? It's a YouTube influencer. That is the number one career that people between 8 and 12 want to be. 30% of, people, of the young people that they surveyed wanted to be a YouTube influencer. Second was a teacher at 26%, and third was a pro athlete. And David, in the span of a year, becomes the most famous man, more famous than the king in all of Israel. Fourth thing he gets very quickly is a princess to love, a princess to love. Verse 27, Saul gave his daughter, Michal, to David as a wife. There's no need for eHarmony or matchmaker.com. The poor shepherd boy gets to marry the princess. Pretty good deal. And he knew he didn't deserve it. Look at verse 23. Uh, they come to him and say, hey, the king wants you to marry his daughter. And he says, is it a trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law? I'm just a poor commoner. Like, I don't deserve this, this beautiful, hot princess um, and all that comes along with it. And in our day, 
like in the days we live in. It's the, the bride's father that usually showers the bride and the groom with gifts, right? That's the tradition. He forks out the money and, and pays for stuff and all sorts of treats for the wedding. Uh, but in David's time, it was the other way around. David had to go and collect gifts for the king in order to get the hand of the bride. And he really had to put some skin in the game. But becoming a part of the royal family wasn't as simple and as conflict-free as the tabloids would make you think. Because almost right away, into that marriage, there is conflict. Right up until the end of that marriage, there is hardship and conflict. And so he's been struggling over 20 years in the wilderness, caring for sheep, unappreciated by his father and his brothers. And David saves the nation from humiliation and slavery. And he gets everything he deserves. But the pride of Saul cannot let David enjoy the fruits of his labor. And Saul is just filled with more and more jealousy and envy and increases uh, with bitterness inside of him because uh, Saul didn't choose to put God first and David chose to put God first. And Saul sees what he could have had if he had just stayed faithful to the Lord. And so he hates David more and more. See, Saul's uh, giant in his life, and we talked about giants last week, is his insecurity. And he covers his insecurity, as we often do, with pride, with arrogance. And one of the tragedies uh, of Saul is that, that he's going to hate the very person who loves him, it seems like, the most. This is the man who's going to care for him, who's been caring for him for years, helping him in his misery, and yet he becomes the object of his anger. And I see this in people's lives, in men and women's lives, unfortunately, Because they can't see. And this is the hard thing, and you've known people like this. Uh, When a person can't see that they are, in fact, their own worst enemy. You ever met somebody like that? Uh, They blame everyone. They lash out at everyone. But you're just like, if you could only see that it's you that's harming yourself the most. Maybe you've known that. Somebody who begins to hate those who love them the most. Maybe they begin to hate a spouse or maybe they begin to hate their children or a parent or a friend. Is that you? Are you hating? Are you bitter towards the people who care about you the most? Is your life not going the way you had planned and so you're lashing out at those who are around you the most? We have to know, brothers and sisters, that the The only one who can take away that pain, the only one who can fix us is Jesus. And we have to cast our pain and our suffering and our disappointments on him and not lash out at those around us. Because eventually it destroys our relationships and eventually it destroys us as it will Saul. But David is going to learn leadership lesson number two. All through the series we're going to be looking at leadership lessons Uh, As we looked at a few weeks ago, leadership lesson one was service. A good leader serves. This time, leadership lesson number two is how to rise after failure. See, many times what is gained quickly is lost even faster. And David is a man in his early 20s, and he's going to be allowed to learn the second lesson of leadership. How to suffer and not let it destroy you. How to fail well. Do you know how to fail well? Uh, How to rise above the disappointments of life without becoming bitter. Look at him. He served his father all those years. 
I think of David, faithful to his, his father, and yet from what we see, he never received the love and affection and affirmation uh, that every child desires from their father. He served the nation by slaying its giant, uh, by defeating the Philistines, and yet they're going to turn on him. Most of the population will turn on him in a matter of months and years. He cared for the princess, and yet she will become resentful towards him because of his love for the Lord. He ministered to the king all those years of of being his armor bearer and his personal musician, and yet he will become the bane of Saul's existence. He will serve the Lord faithfully, and yet he's going to lose everything. And, and all accounts by chapter 22, if we were to look at his life and examine it towards what the world says is successful, his life is a complete failure. But it's not just that he failed. It goes beyond that. David did nothing but good for Saul, and yet Saul is going to repay him with evil. And that's the hard reality of life, ladies and gentlemen, is that sometimes we will do good, and people will repay us with evil. Sometimes the people we love will do the most painful things to us because Saul is going to do four things very soon. He's going to order Jonathan to murder David, to kill his best friend. He's going to five times himself try and kill David throughout the coming chapters. He orders him arrested with no reason. He just sends the very men who David was leading a little while ago to arrest him on no charges, and they were going to kill him. And he sends a hit squad to the princess's house to kill him while he sleeps. So by verse nine, or chapter 19, verse 18, David is falling apart, or his life is falling apart. And it says, so David fled and escaped and went to Samuel and Ramah and told him everything Saul had done. Some of you know what it's like when things just seem to unravel one after the other very quickly. Life is just going along fine and bam, 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 life hits you hard. You ever been like that? Ever felt like that? It's just like, I don't think I can take one more thing. I'm sure that's the way David was feeling. Some of you know what it feels like to be treated badly by those you love. Some of you know what it's like to serve your spouse and yet they treat you badly for it. Some of you know what it's like to serve your elderly parents and love them and treat them well, and yet you're never good enough for them. They never have anything positive to say about you. You're never good enough, and that hurts. Some of you know what it's like to love your children and support them, and yet when they grow up, they turn away from you, and they won't even speak to you anymore. You did good, and yet they treat you with pain. Some of you know what it's like to work a whole career in a certain job and give your all to it, and then the company just turns around and gets rid of you. So how do we handle it? How does David handle this? Does he uh, turn to God and curse God and, and give over to a life of selfishness? Does he, does he become an evil man who, who's all about getting for him now? Does he seek vengeance on Saul and all the people? Does he exterminate them when he becomes king? No, he doesn't do these things. He allows God to shape him through this suffering, to shape his character so that he'll become the greatest human king that the Israelites ever knew. The greatest king is Jesus, but he became the greatest human king that the Israelites would ever know. The greatest leader 
And so what can we do? What can we learn from these next couple of chapters and just doing an overview that we can apply to our own lives so that when we suffer, which we will, we can come out of it well? Well, first of all, we see in David's life that he was not easily offended. He was not easily offended. And, And we can't be so easily offended as we are in our Canadian lives. We need to develop, I call it thick skin with a tender heart. Some people develop thick skin with a hard heart. No, David developed thick skin and he still had a tender heart. Proverbs uh, 19 verse 11 says, a man's insight gives him patience and his virtue to overlook an offense. Proverbs 12 verse 16 says, A fool's displeasure is known at once, but whoever ignores an insult is sensible. The Bible speaks of this person who is not reactionary, who does not let what every every person says or does to them ruin their lives. David cultivated a security in God's love for him. And because he was secure in who God thought he was, that God loved him regardless of his failures, regardless of his status, God loved him when he was a lowly shepherd in the fields, when nobody cared about him, he was secure. And so the most important person's opinion to David was God's. And because of that, he had this skin that could let things roll off of him. Like, think of the way David will treat him. If we, I encourage you to read chapter 19 or 18, 19, and 20 over the next couple of days if you haven't already. Like, he's going to treat him very badly, and yet David responds very well, better than I probably would. He's able to look into to Saul and, and see a broken man and see that Saul's anger and, and uh, Cruelty towards him isn't because of David necessarily, but it's because of a brokenness inside of him. And ladies and gentlemen, we need to cultivate hearts and eyes that when people treat us badly, we can see it's out of their brokenness that they're treating us badly. It doesn't mean we should be doormats. It doesn't mean we should let them abuse us. But it also means we have a heart that can pray for those people, that can still do kindness because David continues to do kindness to Saul even amongst the sufferings. We need to put aside our rights for a few minutes in order to reflect on our duty. And David was a man of duty, okay? And depending on the culture you're from, some cultures are high on duty and low on rights, that they don't look at people with value because they were created by God, but it's all about this is your duty, do it. But we in Canada are very much the opposite. We are all about our rights. I have the right to be treated this way. And if you don't treat me this way, I'm not going to respond with the way that God has called me to respond. And and so we have a low view on duty. I don't care what God has already asked me to do. I'm only going to do it if you do what, treat me in the way that I feel you should treat me. We're lopsided. But there's a balance. Alexander McLaren said, the roots of bitterness are in all of us. The only way to keep from growing rank is to think less of what people think of us and more to our duty. To count it a very small matter of what men think of us and all the important matter of what God thinks of us. So duty is what God has already asked you to do. 
Uh, so you have a duty as parents. If you had a child, God has already told you what to do with that child, to raise them up in the love and discipline of the Lord, to treat them um, with respect, to demonstrate the same kind of love and grace that has been demonstrated to you, but not to allow them to just run amok. That's your duty. And regardless of how that child treats you, you still have a duty to fulfill it. We have a duty if we got married. If we made the choice to get married, our duty is to fulfill our part as the husband or wife, regardless of how the husband or our husband or wife treats us in return. That's our duty. As a citizen, we have duties as, that the Bible lays out as citizens to give our, our government the basic respects and honors that the laws pertain, not to, go, not to, uh, not to do things that aren't called for and not to allow them again to trample our rights. We have a duty as Christians. The God calls us as Christians, regardless of how we think uh, the church um, or other Christians treat us, certain things we are to do. And one of the common things of Western Canadians uh, that we run into, and you've probably seen this yourself, is that uh, we in our minds as Canadian Christians craft what a church should look like. Well, I'm going to go to a church, and if it doesn't meet what my mind has determined it should look like, then I'm not going to fulfill my duties as a Christian and put some skin in the game myself. And that's how they hop around from church to church to church, shopping for the perfect church that doesn't exist because it was created in their mind. But we all have a duty. And David knew his duty. And so he put aside his rights to glorify as God and to fulfill the duties he had called us to. He had thick skin, and, and we need to develop that. Number two, we need to never think of ourselves above suffering. David didn't seem to have this attitude that, well, wait a second, I'm the anointed king. I'm supposed to have life easy, and, and I'm not supposed to be suffering. No, he seemed to have this ability to know that suffering was there. It's a part of life. Sometimes life doesn't work out the way we want it to, and yet he served faithfully throughout it. He knew what Jesus would later tell us, that in this world, you will have trouble. But do not despair, for he has overcome the world. And one of the best things we can cultivate in ourselves is a thankful heart. When you're walking every day in a, with a thankful heart, living in the present, uh, when suffering comes along, you'll deal with it a lot better. Uh, because a thankful person realizes the things that they have is only for a certain amount of time. William and I, uh, we go on Wednesday nights and uh, we go to the uh, local jiu-jitsu club in town. And so it's a, it's a great night that we spend together every Wednesday. And so we usually drive there, we train for a couple hours, and then we drive back and we talk about the issues of life. Uh, because he's a man uh, and he'll be out soon. And so I want to give him whatever I can to help him. And, and so we were talking about, um, I was asking him, oh, Look and think about life, and how can you become a person that lives well through all phases of your life, through your, your young adolescent years, through your marriage, uh, through when you're a grandparent, through when your body fails, when, when, you, when hard times come and good times. How can you be a consistent person? And one of the things we identified is the people that we know that live the best are very thankful people. They're thankful in the moment, thankful for their, their spouse, thankful for their kids, thankful for the meal, thankful for the day. And when you're thankful... When suffering comes along, you're able to deal with it a lot better than the person who just, who's always thinking about the future and never living in the present. Those are the people that often think, why is this horrible thing happening to me? 
I deserve better. We need to develop the same attitude that Paul tells us Jesus had in, second, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. He says, adopt the same attitude that Jesus Christ had, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant and taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself and by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him a name above all other names, so that every name, so that the name of Jesus, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the sun, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to glory of God the Father." This is the sort of attitude we are called to cultivate in our lives. Number three, David remembered, he seemed to have the, the, the idea, the understanding, uh, that when you suffer doing right, you're blessed. When you suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. David also understood that when you suffer for doing wrong, there's a consequence, but he have, seemed to understand this, this truth Peter talks about it in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 14, as he's talking to the Christians who are being hunted down by the Romans. He says, Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. What does that word blessed mean? Well, it's different than what you think. If you listen to TV preachers, you'd think blessing is just money and power and pleasure. No, it's not that. That's monetary blessing, but that's not what blessing means most of the time. One commentator said, true blessing, this kind of blessing, uh, the true servant of God is blessed regardless of his circumstances because God has favored him and he is fully satisfied in his soul. Blessed speaks of our inner state of well-being, the prosperity of our souls through faith in Christ. Blessedness comes from an unhindered fellowship with God the Father through our Lord Jesus. To be blessed is to experience the full impact of God's presence in our lives now and for all of eternity. And so David, although he suffered for things he didn't deserve to suffer, knew that God was with him. That God, his, his relationship with the Father was the most important thing. And he had this peace that seldom we find amongst men. David kept focused on God throughout these ordeals. And so it's going to be about 10 years that he's going to suffer. Think about that. 10 years of his life, he's going to go through this horrible, hard time. And yet he doesn't give up altogether. He despairs at a few points, but he doesn't give up altogether. He always comes back to God. And so if you're suffering, Christian, for doing good, don't give up. Don't give up because God says you're blessed. God says he's well pleased with you. God says he's with you. He's never going to leave you. Even if the world turns on you, even if things get really bad, he's going to be with you. And that is a great hope to have. Number four, David seemed to have, and we need to remember, that our attitude will give hope to others because that's what we see in David's life. His attitude... The way he dealt with life, the way he dealt with suffering, it gave hope to other people. And did you know that if you can suffer well, you will inspire other people? If, if you despair, other people will despair. But if you have hope amongst suffering, others will be 
filled with the same hope that you have. Peter, in the text that we were just reading, if we carry on, uh, verse 14b, he says, Do not fear them or be intimidated, but who the Romans, uh, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at all times to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage of your good conduct in Christ will also be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than doing evil. Don't miss what Peter's saying. When people ask you, okay, the, the Jews hated the Christians, the Romans hated the Christians, they were arresting them, throwing them into jail, taking their, their businesses away, sometimes throwing them to the uh, death by the gladiators or the lions in the Colosseums, and, and yet they were unstoppable. And, and people would, would look at these people who were suffering and they had a hope, an eternal hope inside of them, and they're like, what's with you? Why do you have a hope? Your life looks like it's coming apart. What is it that you have? And Peter reminds them, when somebody asks you why you have the hope inside of you, tell them about Christ. And as we're going to see in the new year when we uh, go into the next chapter, we're going to take a few weeks and focus on Christmas. But when we go back and look at David's life, he's going to be living in a cave as a nomad, like in poverty. And yet... The text is going to tell us that people will flock to him. Why? Because they see the hope that he has. And when we can suffer, I'm not talking about little things, but when we can suffer and not give up, it will encourage and inspire others to find hope in Jesus Christ as well. Number five, take the long view in life. David seemed to have this view. He wasn't living in, the, in just uh, the momentary pleasures of life. He, he seemed to know that there was, there was promises that God had not fulfilled in his life. And if we just live by whatever happens uh, in our momentary uh, lives and not with the view that in the end, God will work out all things good for those who love him and are called by his name, then we'll despair. But if you can look at life, that each day will have challenges, that there's going to be good times and bad times, but that someday the promises that God has made to you will be fulfilled, you will find hope through great sufferings. Paul seemed to have this hope. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not comparable to the glory that will be revealed to us. Verse 24, for in this hope... We are, we're saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what is already, they already see? But we hope for what we do not yet see, and we wait patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us and groans too deep for words. David seemed to have this hope. That God is not a God who lies, that he will fulfill the promises he made. And he promised he would be king, and he promised out of his lineage would become the Messiah, who as we get ready to celebrate in Christmas for is our hope too, 
The same hope that David had is the same hope that we have, that someday God is going to make all the wrongs in our life right, that as we go through these sufferings, he will be with us, that someday there isn't going to be any more suffering, no more crying, no more tears, no more illness, that we'll be with him forever. David had that hope. Do you have that hope? Or are you just going through this world one day at a time, hoping that it's somehow going to get miraculously better on its own? Do you know Jesus Christ? Has he saved you? Has he come to live inside of you? Do you hear his still, small voice? Have you received his forgiveness and grace? It's not enough that you go to church. Not enough that you just show up on Christmas. He's calling us to be his people. He actually wants to live in your life. That's an amazing concept, but that's what the Bible teaches. God wants to not only save you, but live in you. Not only live in you, but change you. Not only change you, but give you hope for the future and love you in a way that no human being can love you. Jesus knew that this world would have problems. That's why he said, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Because tomorrow we'll worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own. Just focus on the day. Focus on Him. Focus on your walk with Him. The people in your lives. As this Christmas, as we get ready to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, what do you have in your life that you can give thanks for? Yeah, there's hard things. But what can you focus on and develop a spirit of thankfulness and a spirit of appreciation? What can you find joy in in your lives? If you need help, if you need prayer, we're going to be up here after um, myself and uh, Pastor Mark and Kat is going to be over here if you want to be prayed for by a female. And we'd love to pray for you during this time. Maybe Christmas is hard for you. We want to be here for you. But I'm going to close and then I will see you next week. And uh, if you want to make an appointment with me, somebody was asking me how how do they make an appointment with me. If you go on our website, you go under... uh, Uh, resources or contact, you'll see meet with Benjamin. You can make an appointment with me and I'd love to talk with you uh, more and pray for you more. Well, God, thank you so much for the hope that David had in you and that you were faithful to him and that someday he would come out of this hard time that he's about to go into and someday you would restore everything that was taken from him and much, much more. And Lord, I pray for everyone in here and no matter where they are in their lives, whether it's a really great time in their life or whether it's a really hard time in their life, Lord, I pray that you would be close to them, that they would know your love for them, that they would know you cared so much that you came to this earth to die for them and to, that you want to give them a hope for the future that cannot be broken. Lord, thank you for all the good things that you are giving us in our lives and the things that we don't deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.